morning again, Oceanside Sanctuary. We are grateful to have you with us for our Sunday morning worship gathering. Wherever you are gathering today, at home or on your front porch, your back porch, your car, uh, local park or at the beach, wherever you might be, we are united together in this space across Facebook and YouTube. And as we continue to press in to our uh, worship gatherings and our groups and our classes during this difficult and challenging time. It's not just the pandemic that's making life difficult and challenging right now. We are just a few days away at this point from what is surely the, the most uh, trying and polarizing and contentious elections of our lifetime. And so as we enter into this space, uh, as a nation coming together to pick our leadership, our political leadership, I wanna continue to ask the question, why church? Why is it that in this environment where churches often seem to take sides in ways that seem to be opposed to the teachings of Jesus, why would anybody still choose to be a part of church? So today I wanna take a look specifically at how Jesus in Mark chapter 10, I think models a way forward for us to be the kind of church that people will be compelled to be a part of because of its goodness and because of its compassion. And so today we're gonna jump into Mark chapter 10. Before we do, I wanna ask that you would just take a moment as usual with me and center ourselves in prayer before we jump into the passage of scripture. Would you join with me please? God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to gather together as a people. We ask that as we open these words of scripture from Mark chapter 10, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would, um, by your truth, cut through the noise, uh, cut through the lies, cut through the propaganda that we are inundated with every single day. And we ask that you would show us a, a clear vision of what it means to be people who organize our lives around the person and the words and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said today, I want us to jump into Mark chapter 10, and we're actually going to cover a decent amount of scripture today. We're going to cover it fairly quickly. As always, I'm going to touch on a few areas of scripture, but I always encourage you to go back and spend a little bit of extra time really soaking in these stories because I think they're incredibly formative for shaping our imagination for what is better in our lives and better in our communities. I'm gonna pick it up in Mark chapter 10, and verse 32. And what I wanna do first is sort of point out the, the overall stories that I wanna to touch on today. And then we're gonna go in in a little bit more detail and I'm gonna show you what I think is helpful for us to notice in those passages today. Starting in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, we have this story of Jesus predicting his own death. And so Jesus is returning to Jerusalem in his ministry at this time. He has gathered a following of disciples, this large community of people who have held him up to be their hopes for the Messiah, who would come and redeem them as a people. And here in verse 32, Jesus throws his disciples for a bit of a loop it says they're on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished and while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside. So this is sort of Jesus's core group of leaders. He took the 12 aside 
and he told them what was going to happen. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, referring to himself, using an old Jewish title, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Now, this is the first sort of nugget of story that I want to give to you today in Mark chapter 10, because I think it highlights something really important. But before we sort of pick that apart, I want to move on to the second part of our three-part story here. So the very next section in Mark chapter 10 picks up in verse 35 and says, Then James and John, right, so two of those 12 who are sort of Jesus's core group of disciples, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus said. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left hand in glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I'll be drinking from or can you be baptized with the baptism that I am to be baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the, the, the drink that I, I drink from, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places have been prepared for those whom they have been prepared. And verse 41 begins this part of this second little story here, uh, where the other disciples hear about what James and uh, John have done. So the other disciples catch wind that these two brothers have been vying for a position of privilege and authority in Jesus's ranks, and they grow frustrated, right? Verse 42, Jesus calls them all together and he says, you know that those, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the third section of our story today that I want to visit starts in verse 46. So the story moves on from this story of James and John requesting these positions of privilege and power and into this amazing story about blind Bartimaeus. And we pick that up in verse 46. Verse 46 says this, And then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples were together with a large crowd, they were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And so they called to the blind man, cheer up, get up on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. 
Now, these three stories, I know we've just covered like a lot of scripture, but what I want to give to you today is the idea that these three stories in succession unpack for us the nature and character of Jesus's leadership as a rabbi in the ancient Near East. And what they do is they commend to us as a church today the kind of leadership that we ought to exercise. And and what I wanna point out to you are just three observations, and I wanna kinda go in reverse. So we're gonna pick it up with the story of blind Bartimaeus. And I think what this illustrates for us is that Jesus, in the midst of everything else that he was doing, Jesus's leadership, Jesus's way, of leading his disciples was to always be present and focused on those who suffer. Think about this. Jesus is leading this growing band of of disciples who are moving through the countryside and there's this growing sense of fervor and uh, rumors going around about how he might finally be the Messiah that's gonna rescue Israel from the oppression of Roman rulers. And in the midst of all of this, there's this blind man on the side of the road who's calling out to be healed because of course he's heard of who Jesus is. And in the midst of all that turmoil, in the midst of sort of the chaos of this political movement that Jesus seems to be leading, Jesus's followers, Jesus's disciples, they they mock this man and they tell him to be quiet because of course, from their perspective, Jesus is doing something bigger and more important than this one man and this one man's needs. But Jesus is focused on this one man and his needs. In spite of how his disciples want Jesus to focus on the bigger picture, Jesus stops the entire operation. He brings the entire movement to a grinding halt for this one poor blind person on the side of the road who surely can't do anything for Jesus' political aspirations. He can't do anything for what the disciples are hoping Jesus will do, but Jesus instead has compassion on this one man. And he resists the call of his disciples to ignore him. And instead, he is focused on the needs of this one person. The first leadership lesson that I take from this is that Jesus always remembers people. Jesus as a rabbi, Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as a leader is not somebody who is first and foremost focused on the big picture. He is not first and foremost focused on building a movement. He is not first and foremost concerned about, you know, creating a big organization that's going to have a massive impact. Jesus is first and foremost a person whose heart is given to the needs of real people who are suffering every single day. Sick people, poor people, people who are struggling with mental illnesses, people who have been cast aside and cast out by their communities for being the wrong kinds of people, people who have betrayed their communities, uh, people who have sinned and made mistakes. Jesus is concerned first and foremost everywhere we see him in the Gospels with meeting the needs of those who are suffering and struggling the most. Jesus remembers people. Now, The next story, sort of working our way backwards, of course, is this famous story of James and John and how they are asking Jesus to appoint them to these high positions of rank and authority. But Jesus takes the occasion to tell them that they have no idea what they're asking for 
Because, see, Jesus' calling is not to a place of privilege and power. Now, they should know that because he just hinted at that a moment before. But before we get to that sort of third story, really the first story in Mark chapter 10 that we read, Jesus is going to take this occasion to gather all of his disciples, and he's going to teach them an incredibly powerful and surprising lesson about leadership in the kingdom of God. Jesus gathers his disciples again, verse 42, Mark chapter 10, verse 42, and he says to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. This is that sort of famous passage where Jesus reiterates a phrase that we've heard again and again, whoever wants to be first must be last, and whoever wants to be a Lord must first be a servant. Jesus, you see, takes this opportunity to gather his disciples and reveal to them that in God's commonwealth, in the kingdom of God, in the world where God's power has God's way, where we are centered on placing what is godly and good and righteous and true at the center of our lives, that there is no place anymore for power and privilege the way that we see it exercised badly in the world around us. And that is a lesson that we find it really difficult to learn because all of us, I think, can identify with James and John. All of us know what it's like to be people who hunger for power and for privilege. And unfortunately, too many times in church, it becomes clear that those who are leading in church have more power and privilege than those that they are supposed to be leading. Now, I could spend all day unpacking all of the various ways that church leaders just in recent years have severely abused their power and their privilege. But I don't have to do that because we've all heard those stories and I'm sure that you have your own stories of that as well. But what's I think important to notice here is that Jesus was expected to appoint positions of power in his ranks because his disciples understood that any organization, any movement, any, any group of people must include some positions of power and authority. And they just assumed, because of the way they've always seen power and authority exercised, they just assumed that people who have lots of authority also get lots of privilege. And so they're vying and jockeying for those positions of privilege. But what Jesus does is he overturns that notion. Like so many other things, Jesus completely turns upside down how God defines authority. And he instead says that authority doesn't have anything to do with power or privilege or position. Authority has to do with how you serve. Authority has to do with how you pay attention, in fact, to the needs of other people. Again, going back to Bartimaeus. In the kingdom of God, people who are in positions of leadership ought to be people who remember people who remember their needs, who are giving their lives to help those who are in need. And by giving your life to help those who are in need, of course, you are gaining trust. You are gaining confidence. And that is the real power of the kingdom of God. It's not privilege. It's not money. It's not the ability to uh, make decisions for large groups of people. It's not having your name on a plaque on an office door. It's 
It's not any of those things. Power in the kingdom of God is about trust and love because you have faithfully given love to others. Now, in the story right before this, our last one, Jesus, I think, really hints at all of this that's coming when he gathers his disciples as they're on their way into Jerusalem and he announces his death. And in this, of course, he says, verse 33, we're going to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Now, now this is the story that we began with today. It's the story that eventually leads into the story of rejecting privilege and leads later into the story of remembering people. And in this first portion of our passage today, Jesus reveals that what's about to happen in Jerusalem is completely the opposite of what his disciples expect. Because you see, Jesus was considered a potential Messiah. This is one of the reasons why Jesus' fame spread so quickly because at this time, in, in the lives of the Jews in the ancient Near East, they had been living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They had been subjugated and oppressed by a foreign nation, by a nation of Gentiles even. And they had been waiting for generations, for hundreds of years to be delivered from this oppression. And they were expecting a Messiah to come and lead a revolt against Rome and overthrow the Gentiles and liberate the people of God from that foreign yoke of rulership and oppression. And so, of course, when Jesus is moving into Jerusalem, his disciples are expecting that if he's the real Messiah, if he's the true Messiah, that what Jesus is going to be doing is essentially organizing an army of people. And this explains why James and John are just now, as they're entering into Jerusalem, grabbing Jesus and asking for positions of power because they think it's about to go off. They think that this revolt is about to launch. It's about to happen. But just before they enter Jerusalem, Jesus gathers his disciples and he basically says, listen, here's what's about to happen. We're gonna go into Jerusalem and the chief priests and the rulers of the temple, in other words, all those people who are expecting a Messiah, they're going to reject me. They're not going to embrace me. They're going to falsely accuse me, and then they're going to hand me over to the very people that you think I'm going to overthrow. And then they're going to mock me and spit on me and kill me. But there is a resurrection coming. Now, this first story in the three stories, I think, reveals something incredibly powerful about Jesus's brand of leadership. And what that is, is simply this. Jesus, when he enters into Jerusalem with all those expectations, all those political ideas about who Jesus will be and what side he will take, Jesus, like he so often does, refuses to be pigeonholed or characterized or categorized by one side or the other. In other words, Jesus refuses to play the usual game of power and violence that we play so often as humans. Throughout our history, our entire civilizations, uh, all of our cultures, all of our societies are defined by the usual game 
of rivalry and antagonism, that jockeying for power, where two groups of people are essentially set against each other and they demonize and they vilify each other. And ultimately, of course, that leads to a violent conflict of one kind or another. And in this particular story, those two sides are the Jews and the Roman Empire. And Jesus is expected by the Jews of the ancient Near East, he's expected especially by his followers to take the side of the Jews against the Roman Empire. But Jesus doesn't do that. He refuses to play that game of rivalry and antagonism. In fact, he enters into Jerusalem and instead of excoriating the Romans, he flips over the tables in the temple and excoriates the religious leaders. He dresses down the Pharisees and the Sadducees at every opportunity and reveals that it's not Rome that is oppressing the poor and the weak and the marginalized in their, their towns and in their communities and in their nation, but rather it's the very elites, the very leaders who are supposed to be caring for the Jews who are really the ones victimizing them. Jesus doesn't take the side of the Romans. He doesn't take the side of the Jews. Instead, what Jesus does is he rejects all of those notions of power and privilege. He calls out all the abuses committed by everybody involved in that situation. And as a result, of course, he suffers. Because every time we do that, every time we call out the power and the privilege, the abuses and the injustices of those who are in power, every time we do that, we can expect to generate a lot of anger, a lot of resistance, and a lot of suffering. And so instead of playing that usual game of power and violence, Jesus allows his suffering to reveal the bankruptcy of our normal power games. Jesus allows his accusations against him. Jesus allows the mock uh, trial that is uh, set up as a, a sham to, uh, to accuse him of crimes that he never committed. He allows the, the rising up of unjust power to crush him and eventually hang him on a cross, he willfully engages in that suffering because he knows that the suffering itself will pull back the veil and reveal that our usual way of engaging in these rivalries, engaging in these antagonisms, and engaging in this kind of scapegoating is actually a bankrupt way for us to solve our problems as a society. In other words, Jesus willfully gives himself as a scapegoat to demonstrate that that system of violence and retribution really doesn't work. And at the end of that first little story where Jesus gathers his disciples and he tells them that he's going to die, he hints that there is a resurrection coming. He says, after three days, I will rise. And so inherent in this story of willful suffering and willful sacrifice in order to draw back the curtain and reveal the bankruptcy of human power, in that sacrifice, there is also the hope that in doing so, that something new and better is coming. 
You know, there's a, uh, a great book by the German Lutheran Christian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together, where he unpacks a lot of the dynamics engaged in living in community together in a way that publicly witnesses to exactly the kind of public witness to justice and goodness and righteousness that Jesus embodies here in Mark chapter 10. And in Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says something really powerful I want to share with you today. He says this, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him, and on the cross he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. And for this cause he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian too, that's you and me, the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. You see, this this life that Jesus models for us in these three short stories in Mark chapter 10 is not just a life of love and self-sacrifice, not just a life uh, that is sort of uh, cozy in a community of believers where we learn to love each other and we sort of stick together in that tight little community and and we serve each other's needs. No, that's not what Jesus came for. That's not the life that Jesus modeled. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spells out very clearly for us that that life of mutual service and self-sacrifice and yes, that life of suffering is not just for us in our community of faith that we're to live it for others in our midst that we might normally consider to be enemies or foes. I love the way Cornell West puts this. He says, justice is what love looks like in public. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is radically committed to a politics of love that remembers people and their suffering, that rejects privilege and power and that reimagines politics not as a kind of rivalry or antagonism, not as a power game that ultimately leads to violence, but reimagines politics as a way of people to live in community, in mutual love and service to each other, in spite of their differences, in spite of being enemies. And that is, of course, I think what it means to be the church, and that is, I think, precisely how the church is called to lead. If we were able to do that as a church, if we were able to be a people who were able to reject power and privilege to remember the suffering of all the people in our midst, in and around us, and if we were a people who were willing to give our lives even to suffer, to meet the just needs of those who are suffering, then I think that we would be a church that people might be compelled to join, to enter into life with, and to learn how to love alongside each other. Today, I wanna leave you with those thoughts and ask that in your comments today that you would respond uh, to a couple questions. The first question is this, how have you seen power and privilege abused by those who are in charge? It might be in church or it might be in politics. It might be um, in uh, a business or a school setting. But how have you seen people fall prey to that usual game of antagonism and rivalry and a fighting for power that leads to violence? And my second question is just the opposite of that. How have you seen 
People exhibit the genuine love of Christ in a way that rejects those power games and instead creates a new kind of revolutionary politics of love and service, even if it means suffering. So I want to leave you with those two questions today. I hope that you are keeping safe and keeping well. Would you just join with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, we thank you again for this passage in Mark chapter 10. We thank you for how your example through the person and work of Christ really leads us to have a new imagination for what it might look like to be a people who exhibit love in public, who are able to lead through service, who are able to remember the needs of the people in our midst who are struggling and suffering. We ask that you give us the courage and the wisdom to live that life out. We pray all this in Jesus' name. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Caden. We're on to the announcements part. Uh, in case you're wondering what I'm wearing, the temperature has dropped at least five degrees and it rained for more than an hour, so it's winter in California and I'm ready. All right, let's get started really quick. Uh, so the first thing that I have for you guys is, as always, if you do want to connect with Oceanside Sanctuary, make sure you guys go to oceansidesanctuary.org contact. That's where you can find all the info to get in contact with uh, the church and then find out any more information that you need uh, so that we can keep you updated with what's going on. Moving on, we have uh, the book club on Thursdays from, uh, excuse me, on Thursday starting on November 5th is going to be the book club. That's going to be at 6.30 p.m. and that's on Zoom. Um, so it looks like the book that is going to be discussed is going to be called I Think You're Wrong but I'm listening. And that's by Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers. Um, the book is about two friends on opposite sides of the aisle who provide a practical guide to grace-filled political conversation where, uh, while challenging readers to put understanding before argument. Um, it sounds like a really awesome book. Um, it provides practical tools to move past frustration and into productive dialogue, uh, emphasizing that faith should inform the outcome of the engagement. Let's see, um, in addition to the book club, we also have a Justice Works team meeting coming up. That's gonna be the following Monday on November 9th, uh, also on Zoom at 6.15 p.m. Um, if you guys uh, want to join the Justice team, um, go ahead and get in contact at that same place that I mentioned um, uh, at oceansidesanctuary.org slash contact. Um, and you guys can ask any questions about that. Um, and uh, just a little bit about our justice team, um, justice works team, excuse me. Um, it's a group committed to organizing for action on issues that matter to the poor, oppressed, and marginalized in the community. Um, and it's just a great effort uh, all around. Anyone is welcome to attend that meeting. Um, that's at 6.15 on November 9th. Alrighty. Uh, we also have call and response Thursday, November 19th at 6.30. Call and Response is the monthly scripture study group um, that approaches Bible study as a group dialogue, much like the call and uh, response tradition found um, in the uh, sacred literature, uh, liturgy, and music of all kinds. Um, for any of the info of the last couple things that I've mentioned as far as things that are dated, such as the Justice Works um, meeting, as well as the book club meeting, you can go to oceansidesanctuary.org calendar. Alrighty, 
And then uh, lastly, I did just want to say um, Oceanside Sanctuary is a nonprofit and we do rely on the gifts and donations of people like you guys. Um, so if you'd like to support the mission and you'd like to support the church, um, go ahead and go to OceansideSanctuary.org slash give. Um, we do appreciate everything you guys are doing for us and we appreciate uh, you staying up to date with church and the message and what's going on right now. Um, so I hope you guys really have a good week and make sure you stay warm.